0: They say truth is stranger than fiction, but fiction has the advantage that it can be written down without the truth of events trying to break down its door or invade its hometown. Usually. It's something to consider when we try to piece together the past and realize we only have the records of those who made it back to their writing implements before becoming, well, history. I'm your host, Ashford Wilhelm, neophyte historian, podcaster, and owner of a copy of the Lincoln-Douglas Debates as transcribed to vinyl via Scrying Mirror. You get the occasional astral wind noise, but it's probably the closest we'll get to being there. Welcome to another episode of Vorpal History. A podcast that takes what we thought we knew about our shared past, and maybe turns it on its head. I didn't have another idea for how I'd be cutting up the concept of history with a slice through anything's sword, but we needed an intro, so... It's very stream-of-consciousness, you know? Okay, so we were going through the works of one Lannis Caxton, a scribe to Lord Callum Stonecarp, governor of the Dunwelmish colony. They discovered a nearby temple full of strange humanoids in black, the basement had something in it that could warp time and space, and said something spat the second expedition to find it out into the nearby forest. One of the humanoids gave Caxton a map, and then a nearby squirrel found this exchange worthy of swearing at him. It took a while for these events to further complicate Caxton's life as the weather and housekeeping occupied his time for a while. deep Day, the 6th of Mavestus Forgive me, Keepers of Chronicles, but it has been a trying few days as our new home appears to be prone to autumn rains. Normally this wouldn't be much of an issue no matter where one lives, but if one spends most of the day in a large building surrounded by hills of earth that previously covered said building and didn't plan for water filling the interior of those hills like a bowl, one should plan on having to dry one's socks. I have also become acquainted with how to shovel drainage ditches, though again I would swear that some of the work is done after I have had my blisters healed and collapsed in bed for the night. Lord Stonecarp has hinted that we have volunteers making up for my lack of will and strength, and I have deemed it wise to not make further inquiries for the time being at any rate little of note happened or at least nothing that warranted scraping mud from the floor and shooing toads out from under the furniture today saw one of several reports concerning the theft of food from our meagre stores while meat is fairly plentiful if not occasionally edible our harvestable items are in shorter supply this is due to the weather turning colder and our druidic colonists having limits on how much they can coax plants to grow and bear fruit there's also debate on what grain should be prioritized and how it should be used, as the competing forces are largely the breadmakers and the beer makers. The former maintains it needs to feed the latter, while the latter emphasize how few will care about any problems, including a lack of baked goods, should they be allowed to produce their wares. The winemaker's guild boycotted the meeting is known as seen fit to druidically enhance their grapevines as of yet. Not to be outdone, the priests of Nalan and Ora have been busy working their own food-based miracles, producing quantities of a flour-like substance that appears to work well in the making of flatbread and as a coating for anything deep-fried. Rumours that spirits brewed with it will cause all manner of hallucinatory experiences have caused some issue with the clergy distributing their foodstuffs. At first we thought it might be due to worries regarding heresy, but the more enquiries we made, the more we came away with the impression that the effects might not be completely harmless. Lord Stonecop has scheduled several private meetings regarding this matter. Using fermented, God-generated carbs has been a staple of American spirits for over two centuries, which gave the early churches making the stuff a little conundrum when supplying it to the alcoholic beverage industry. On the one hand, it funds their missions, and on the other, it causes people to sometimes flip their brains into modes that can become heretical, sometimes literally. More than one schism arose from someone drinking a mana-made bottle of something and waking up the next morning with a personal message from one or more gods about how things ought to be done. Few gods ever seemed to speak up about outlawing these beverages, meaning they either approved of the practice or they probably thought it was funny. It's not often that I'm asked if our governor has been sleeping well or hasn't been imbibing the mana brew that the churches wish to curtail, but both of our priests dropped hints that this was a concern. Apparently, Lord Stonecarp directly questioned them regarding talking animals. When I broached the subject with his lordship, he pointed out that I'd mentioned one that swore at me in the forest. It's been several days since that incident, and I do recall not feeling like I'd quite been at my best at the time. I must also mention that I'm surprised, flattered, that his lordship apparently read over my account of the expedition. Truly, his guidance and mental inquisitiveness know no bounds, assuring the success of our colony. Now that he's no longer reading over my shoulder, I've discovered that he doesn't read much but the final few sentences of each entry, thus his knowledge of my foul-mouthed squirrel encounter, and yet not even realizing we discovered a... whatever that was in the temple. Speaking of which... The temple has been declared off-limits to all, although that will hardly prevent anyone from visiting, I'm sure. Anyone willingly going there will not have any rescue attempts made on their part, and those supposedly taken against their will shall be handled on a case-by-case basis. Lord Stonecarp emphasizes being important to the colony should one fear of being abducted. Rumors that Caxton kept a hidden journal entitled something like Why I'm Important to Rescue, detailing certain activities of Lord Stonecarp and possibly others, have been bouncing around for centuries now. Both families deny its existence or any of the rumored contents, which is fair enough, given what we do know about what went on at Dunwellmish. Listeners to the previous episode might be wondering what happened to the map that Lannis received from one of the black-clad temple weirdos whether or not he actually forgot to present it to lord stonecarp or he withheld it until he was given the worthless promise that he wouldn't have to go on another expedition is up for debate listen to the lucky go show It's better in sliced bread we got extras we got more we have everything you need lucky go show free v bucks right here i'm confused do you want a mug? Do you want bed sheets? Do you want a happy go lucky shirt and a Yeti? All for free. At the end of this is a free promo code and it can all be yours. This is the best thing ever! For a small fee of $55 plus charity tax. Hey, everybody, Daniel here. This is the Lucky Go Show, now appearing on TFN Audio from the Fantasy Network. Darneday, the Eighth of Mavestus Stonecarp Hall received an unusual visit today in the form of the wizard Angstrom, whose tower now looks as if it grew from the very spot on which it was built. The man himself is a powerful presence, his pointed hat often touching the ceiling leaving sparks where it makes contact. He has also taken to wearing some kind of wand belt, with at least two of his magical weapons in easy reach at any given time. I later inquired with Lord Stonecarp if these violated the no-weapons rule we tried to enforce in the hall. Our governor told me that Angstrom himself said they'd be commonplace in a few hundred years, with magicians using them in some form of ritual dueling to settle disputes. Besides, he noted we hadn't tried to confiscate them upon his arrival. Ergo, we'd set the precedent that wands were not a part of the regulations in question. I almost noted the reason why we didn't do so is that none of us were a more powerful wizard who could be expected to handle any objections. However, as no other wizards of similar stature were available, I decided the issue wasn't worth pursuing at this juncture. Angstrom also brought with him a small cage containing what looked like a common starling, something that was apparently of import regarding his meeting with Lord Stonecarp. I would swear it, before both of the divine representatives we have in our colony, and not just to perpetuate my true claim at requiring more time recovering from my last ordeal, but the starling gave me an evil look. Not one like a curse or a hex, mind you, but more as if I were responsible for it being caged and probably having missed a very important appointment. I was soon called into the office, whereupon I was ordered to hand over the map I'd been given outside the temple. I'd completely forgotten it, likely due to stress, overwork, and having been so close to whatever it was that lurked under the temple itself. When I located it and gave it to Lord Stonecarp, the starling aimed a wing at me and spoke, See, I told you he had it. I am told that I was in some sort of fugue state for roughly half an hour after that. Keep in mind that Caxon, for all his travels, was a pretty sheltered guy when it came to wildlife. He'd read about talking beasts, of course, and he'd probably seen or met non-human beings when he was learning his trade in Lon Caldonum's Ixford University. At the very least, he was likely used to talking non-humanoids wearing clothes and being somewhat larger for reasons we'll explore in a bit. I am to be put in yet another expedition. My excitement defies description, at least in words that I'd likely be chastised for, putting in the colony's official records. The map leads us to a cove north of our settlement, in which, so a little bird told us, is a hostage situation. Our missing vessel, the Waywarden, is moored there. However, due to altercations between the crew and the fauna of this land, the ship is not in the hands of any one faction. I am being sent to negotiate the release of our wayward colonists, as well as to try and secure as much of the vessel's cargo as I can. My protestations about most certainly not being a diplomat have been quashed. Apparently, the fact that I don't have an arsenal of weapons and a desire to use them on anything outside of Dunwelmish more than qualifies me as the closest thing to a neutral party. Also, Angstrom will be joining us. As an apparently even handed negotiator, I shall not comment on the presence of someone whose boots likely remain clean by making dirt afraid of incurring the wearer's wrath. Our guide on this journey is named Springsong, who is a talking sparrow. Forgive the pause, I had to reread that line a few times to fully embrace the situation. So, yeah. Talking animals, folklore is loaded with them, usually helping out someone to become a member of a royal house or depose some wicked ruler. And here's the amazing thing, they existed and probably still do. The last confirmed sighting was in 1974 when a dog owned by the president blew the whistle on the use of scrying rituals to spy on the opposing party's headquarters. This is why when world leaders have pets, they're either kept out of secure places or watched 24-7 for signs they might start blabbing about what they've heard. Even when they were at what many scholars pinpoint as their population's height, they were rare to encounter, mostly out of self-preservation. It became a standing order in most kingdoms to do away with any talking animals that were encountered. This was also being done out of self-preservation. Talking animals either didn't like existing power structures, or they really enjoyed messing with them. It's no wonder that they're believed to be the ones behind a ton of conspiracy theories these days. Belief in a group called the Prioritas Eschaton of Talking Animals, or PETA, gained some traction recently, though it's not taken seriously by most veterinarians with political science degrees. So from about a thousand years ago onward, monarchs decided they'd had enough with some talking cat duping nobles into marrying off their children to commoners. Anytime something that wasn't a person or a parrot started producing speech, they'd be quickly done away with in one form or another. Killing them was seen as something of a taboo, and we have claims that doing so was a recipe for incredibly bad luck. It's difficult to pin down if executing a chattering mouse will end your reign, given how unstable most monarchies were in the first place. Between the succession issues, wars, and on some occasions offending one or more gods, the impact of talking animals seems a bit minor by comparison. Maybe that's why they were made something of a scapegoat. Merely locking them up didn't seem to be a solution, as they could often find a clever means of escape, or at least they were recorded as being clever. Their victims sometimes remind me of how a corporation. Uh, You know, technically did nothing wrong in spite of giving a really important task to someone who is probably there because they're related to someone important and not a whole lot else. Which kind of sounds like someone who could easily be talked into doing just about anything, especially if it was, say, you know, their dog. This is where at least few monarchs hit on the idea of exporting their talkative pet problem to anywhere else. Uh, This apparently gave them deniability to whatever might seek revenge on them for killing the animals while ensuring they wouldn't see them again. As our Dunwelmish colonists are discovering, adventurers weren't the only group their homelands had been exporting to new and distant places. Caxton goes on about his preparations for this new diplomatic mission for several pages, so we join him as he's arriving in the cove where the waywarden is moored. Monday, the 10th of Mavestus. The map was accurate enough, though it became readily apparent that it had been drawn with wings in mind rather than the consideration for those who couldn't fly. Springsong sensed our difficulty and merely shrugged his wings at any complaints. He hadn't been particularly talkative apart from requests to be freed from the cage Angstrom still carried. These ended when he speculated that our sparrow might have been the one who composed the map, causing more than one person in our party to make sure they had arrows knocked in case an airborne target appeared to let them vent some frustration. This land is overgrown with all manner of thorny plants, for the record. When we finally reached the cove, we beheld our lost vessel more or less intact. We also smelled something that took us several minutes to recognize appetizing food being cooked by competent chefs. I do not know the spell Engstrom cast on our group, but it turned what would have been a headlong stampede into the water in the hopes of reaching the waywarden first, "'into a bit of false start with longing looks toward the ship. "'The wizard made no apologies and harumphed about her lack of self-control "'while striding toward the sand-covered shore. "'We were met by what I would describe as a wildlife delegation. "'They were arranged by height in two rows facing us, "'flanking a path to a small boat that was to ferry us to the ship. "'I saw songbirds, raccoons, cats, dogs, "'and what I believe was a ferret among their number. "'At the oars of the boat was a large bear. Many of the animals assembled wore bits of clothing or other adornments, some had weapons strapped to themselves, appearing to be a kind of honor guard. We were addressed by a rather handsome orange cat wearing a child-sized waistcoat with a ruffled collar. It announced that two of our number might journey to the ship, while the rest of our party was to wait while negotiations commenced. When they mentioned that food and drink would be provided for those on shore, I found myself unceremoniously bundled into the boat. "'by those assembled and felt it shoved out into the water "'with far more force than any group of animals could have done. "'Even the bear seemed a bit taken aback by this. "'Popular are you?' it asked. "'I decided it best not to reply. "'Upon my arrival in the waywarden I found Engstrom already there, "'and I joined him with those present at being unsurprised at this. "'The boat I had come in was immediately laden with food and sent to shore, "'delaying our negotiations until the sounds of ravenous gluttony "'had died down to a dull roar.' Angstrom and I were led to the captain's quarters, where we sat at a lavishly prepared meal that even the wizard's appetite-curbing spell couldn't completely dull my desire for. We were joined by the Waywarden's original captain, Sovit Lachnall, and a mastiff that wore an eye patch as well as what appeared to be Lochnell's hat. The mastiff introduced itself as Admiral Bowser, and invited everyone to eat before our talks were to begin. Listen to The Lucky Go Show. It's better than sliced bread. We got extras, we got more, we have everything you need. Lucky Go Show? Free V-Bucks, right here. I'm confused. Do you want a mug? Do you want bed sheets? Do you want a happy-go-lucky shirt and a Yeti? All for free? At the end of this is a free promo code and it can all be yours. This is the best thing ever. For a small fee of $55. Plus charity tax. Hey, everybody, Daniel here. This is the Lucky Go Show now appearing on TFN Audio from the Fantasy Network. Foodies will be glad to hear that you can find recipes for some of the dishes served at this meeting, thanks to analysis of the food stains on the original pages of Caxton's account. There was also Mastiff DNA on some of the stains which suggests that Bowser was a sloppy eater or perhaps drooled a bit when he spoke. Bowser apparently chose the rank of Admiral out of some kind of deference to Captain Lochnell. It was to place Bowser in a respectable position to the human crew and their leader, yet allow Lochnell to still claim a command position in regards to the ship. The situation boiled down to this. The Waywarden, although separated from the other ships, had come ashore at almost the same time as the others came to Dunwellnish. The crew scouted out the land, and having several cooks on board, set about to sampling the local flora and fauna to add to their lists of ingredients. When some of the furrier ingredients verbally protested, things got a little chaotic. Once the local talking animal population found out they were being taken by invaders, they were easily able to capture many of the waywardens' foraging parties because they had bears on their side, among other things. Apparently, a large fish talked someone into lowering a rope ladder, promising to grant them wishes. Uh, This poor sod was then ambushed by two white angry beavers who kept him quiet, while the animals that couldn't fly made their way onto the ship. Accounts of what happened next differ as both the crew and the animals embellished and downplayed various alleged events. Caxton recorded them all, accurately enough that both parties put their signatures or paw prints on them, once they found out he was the official colonial chronicler. The situation that Lannis and Angstrom found was that the animals had control of the upper deck and the stores in the hold. The owls, raptors, and snakes, often carried by other birds, would make sure that no one could walk outside safely while the larger animals were able to hold the Hold the hold uh, by sheer mass and intimidation. The crew had control of the armory and the galley. The former was their primary bargaining chip as they threatened to start firing cannon at anything that came close to them, disregarding the damage that might do to the hull. They were able to occasionally get foodstuffs from the ship's stores by means of distraction and faint attacks, but the animals soon wised up to these tactics. What made it more of a symbiotic relationship was when the cooks started preparing meals with the thought that if they were going to eventually die, to talking beasts, they might as well go out with something decent to eat. The animals, it turned out, became very interested in what was being prepared, and with the strongest argument being the bears are drooling, an accommodation was made. The animals would bring food components from the forest and ocean in exchange for the crew preparing it for everyone under supervision. It said that recipes were swapped, though the crew confided they had little interest in preparing the regurgitated insects and seeds the bird provided, for example. At least they reasoned they found out what in this land was poisonous and what wasn't. And so the stalemate persisted until both sides found common cause against the humanoids in black from the temple. Abductions of the animals began, much in the same way they had taken some of the colonists. Those who remained weren't certain what had happened to their comrades, though they had what they referred to as dark thoughts about what had been done to them. It's here I should note that there's a theory that talking animals were or are a kind of a light hive mind, It's not so much they think together, they just share a kind of collective personality and get feelings about the experiences and fates of their fellows. I mean, this is far-fetched, but it's the best we can do based on the information we have, and it explains some things. Uh, It's also, so goes, the hypothesis how they can manage to have any kind of intellect with which to form words, sew clothing, trick monarchs, and otherwise disrupt institutions wherever they go. There are quite a few anarchist groups that claim talking animals as their symbol, which is why the online group Anonymous frequently uses the sly fox mask. If they still exist, going underground has only enhanced their reputation as being responsible for anything that appears to defy explanation or appears to involve skullduggery. Um, This is encouraged by just about every politician, internet conspiracy theorist, or CEO that needs a quick scapegoat while they offload their shares. If that last one reminds you of that whole Enron mess, you're not alone. We're skipping over the minutes of several meetings that many suspect that Caxton was drawing out so he could avoid having to go back to boiled mystery meat at Dunwellnish. We rejoin the record after the negotiations have come to some kind of head. One cook remained on the waywarden, not just to seal our treaty, but out of loyalty to the captain. The animals were well pleased with this, especially one of the bears who told his fellows, that's one for each of us, eh, lads? We were assured that this was a joke. We assured them that promises of special ingredients, being added to the food should anything happen to the non-animals crew the waywarden, was equally meant in a spirit of mirth. Angstrom polished his wands yet again to get everyone back in the matters at hand. The cooks were assured they would be hailed as gods within the boundaries of blasphemy when they arrived at Dunwelmish. Admiral Bowser declined to say where the waywarden would be bound, out of a courtesy to his exiled passengers, who were wary of any interception, should word spread of their destination. Captain Lochnell said he'd planned on finding a new home with this voyage, but would rather it be somewhere else. As we returned to Dunwellnish with our new charges and watched the waywarden sail toward the horizon, I asked Angstrom why the temple and the swallow had provided us with a map to this location. His answer was something along the lines of, Even a temple to an otherworldly entity is a power structure. If the talking animals couldn't convince one of their own to upset their apple cart, they likely caught some of them trying to do so. He held up the empty cage. Our feathered friend promised me great power and wealth. Should I decide to meddle in their affairs? That they gave you directions to the waywarden tells me the temple was already trying to deal with that ocean-bound zoo. In the spirit of what I thought was camaraderie, I congratulated our resident wizard on having avoided temptation when offered such things. He cocked an eyebrow and told me to make no mistake that he could be tempted, but it was not the proper bait. I'm not sure what to recommend considering this conversation to Lord Stonecarp. Perhaps it amounts to as much as knowing which direction a storm is coming from so you can later inform someone as they dig you out of the rubble. The Waywarden passed into legend, of course. There were stories of ships suddenly gaining animal mascots while out in the middle of the ocean, and soon after developing a sudden case of mutiny and new management. A lot of these stories came from places near coastlines, enough of them that they're given a little significance just due to the numbers. Even just a few years ago, a movie called Bowser's Ark was in theaters, sparking debate as to if all of the talking animals on screen were CGI or not. Dunwellmish did hail the return of edible food to the colony, though cooks found it challenging to prepare some of the things being brought in from the forest. On the plus side, the former cooks were able to go back to their old professions, and a few were able to find new ones, uh, usually involving the production of quite flavorful glue and leather. We're going to take a little diversion next episode into one of the major causes of the Civil War and how it got a foothold in Dunwellmish. It's also why it's so difficult to find accurate burial records from our early settlements. You've been listening to Vorpal History, a look at the fantastical history of the world, which, for all you know, is totally real. Just ask any cat you find wearing Wellingtons. Get more of this podcast and other great content on the Fantasy Network.